Uh, I want to take a minute to uh, just talk to you a little bit about daily exhortation. Um, we're encouraged to be about that. And uh, there were some really, really good examples of that this week. And I just wanted to kind of point those out and just take a minute. And uh, I asked God if I could do this, so that's a little bit of time. But uh, Tuesday morning, we got a note from Ben. And it was just a reminder uh, in the preached word on the last Sunday that, you know, sincerity in and of itself is not enough. And so he said we have to work hard to love steadfastly and to know God rightly. Um, to know God rightly uh, is to know his word, uh, to walk in obedience to it, so we're encouraged in that, and to love steadfastly. You know, we've been learning what love is. Uh, it looks a lot of times like compassion and empathy and sympathy and giving. Um, just being nice but if it's not wrapped in the truth it's none of those things um, so we're learning how to be truthfully loving steadfastly which means tomorrow be, the next day be, not just today um, and that's um, we, we, we say to ourselves and we think hey I'm going to do that but it's borne out when we go that next day so pray that God would help us to persevere in whatever uh, this is this is love to be visited Thursday you got a note from Scott uh, preparing for corporate worship this morning I hope you didn't miss it there was some good stuff there. And I just wanted to share a little bit because I know uh, in my busyness, sometimes I miss these things. Just a couple of things. He, he, he let you know the songs we were going to be singing. I gave you the words to those, the scriptures that went with some of those, and I want to share with you a couple of those. Songs that you may, as we sing over the course of our time together this morning, uh, if you can sing and be wondering what do I sound like, next to me here and it's completely an opportunity to worship. One of the songs is your beautiful. It says, I see your face in every sunrise, the colors of the morning are inside your eyes, the world awakens in the light of the day. I look up to the sky and say, you're beautiful. I see your power in the moon lit night, where planets are in motion and galaxies are bright. We are amazed in the light of the stars, it's all proclaiming who you are, you're beautiful. I see you there hanging on a tree. You bled, and you died, and then you rose again from me. Now you're sitting on your heavenly throne. Soon you will be coming, soon we will be coming home. You're beautiful. I pray that you're remembering right now. When we arrive at eternity shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing. You're beautiful. Couple of verses behind him, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. But he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And then in Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine women, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Amen. Cannons. It's falling from the fire, the strange and lovely sound. I hear it in the thunder and rain. It's ringing in the skies like cannons in the night. The music of the universe plays. You are holy, great and mighty. The moon and the stars declare who you are. I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. Forever my heart will sing of how great you are. Beautiful and free, the song of galaxies is reaching far beyond the Milky Way. Let's join in with the sound. Come on, let's sing it loud. 
as the music of the universe plays. All glory, honor, power is yours. Amen. Forever. Amen. One of the verses behind that song, Psalms 19, 1. I'm going to read all of Psalm 19 because it, well, at least through verse 14, it's hard to stop. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Is truth there? More to be desired are they that go, even much fine go, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There's your call of being steadfast in truth. There's a blessing and a reward in that. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you missed, that's just two of those songs and the scriptures that went along with them. If you missed that exhortation on Thursday, Sarah uses his word of prayer for school worship. Um, take opportunity to our encouragement comes from Hebrews 3. This is the last thing I share. Christ is faithful over God's house of the Son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting our hope. Hold fast our confidence. Steadfast. <coughs> Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing of the wilderness. For your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. They will swear in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Here's the charge. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Perseverance, steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for the truth of your word that it reveals you. And Father, in our obedience to it, we see you, we get to know you, we grow in you, and are blessed by you. So Father, I pray this morning that we would cling to the truth of your word. And Father, I pray for the grace in Christ to be steadfast in my life. That each one here in this body would be steadfast in love. Father, speaking truth, having compassion, sympathy, empathy, all those things grounded in your word, Father. That the truth is on our lips. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering for your sake. Father, I pray that our worship will be a sweet, sweet, fragrant offering to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, you are great. Mighty and worthy to be praised. We are so blessed. Be able to enjoy this morning. What a treasure. I'm thankful for my voice this morning. 
and as poor as it may sound to the human ear, it's thankful for the sweet privilege of spending it on you. Thankful for breath. Breath can fuel words that are true.
I can't believe that we're seven years during the period of detention work, one that we didn't even participate in. We're taking the needy work. It's finished work. Secondly, we consider that the Lord suffers a covenant suffer with provision and full bellies comes responsibility. He told Israel, when you move into houses that you didn't build, you move into a land that you didn't earn, when you drink from cisterns that you didn't dig, when you drink wine from grapes that you didn't plant, remember me. When you eat and are full and are perfect, remember and engage and worship me. That with provision comes covenant. Remember, you're in fellowship and agreement with me, and I will not be mocked. We sit and dine, we are taking and eating, enjoying his provision, and we are also remembering, oh yes, you're the covenant with this God who gave you this meal. Third, we consider it's a supper of deliverance. If you were here last week, this phrase will be familiar. If you weren't, I encourage you to go back and listen. The sound of lips smacking behind blood-slattered doors. We considered last week that as we take the supper, we hear the wind and wing of our destroyer. Pass by. Man, that all ministered to We hear the wind and wing of our destroyer pass us by because the iniquity that we have achieved, really, is laid on somebody else. And it's his blood that slapped it over the door. Not because of anything special about us, not because of anything that we've done, but because that blood is on that door. God passes us more. Because of the blood of another. And fourth, we consider that the Lord suffers a supper of grace and mercy. Examine the story of Mephibosheth. Realize and remember that we're not A bunch of cripples that really deserve to die. But by some amazing act of grace and mercy, we are not only spared, we are seated at the table with the King of Kings and Holy Spirit. And we take the supplement and we are the parts of the ships. Now this week we're going to consider two things. There's going to be a part three. Two things we're going to consider today are treasures. First is the Lord's Supper is a supper with the priests of the Most High. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. <coughs> Lord's Supper is a supper with the priests of the Most High God. I told you that we're guilty oftentimes of being parachuters and jumping into a New Testament story or context and not really taking in all that happened before we got there. So recognizing that we're parachuters, we need to talk to somebody on the ground. So we're talking to the people on the ground to find out what happened before we got here. So we're spending a lot of time in the Old Testament to understand baptism and the Lord's Supper. A lot happened before the Jordan. A lot happened before that night eve before his crucifixion. So to understand those things right, we have to be more than parachutes. We have to be investigators. We go back and find out the scoop. Genesis chapter 14. I'm starting verse 18. I'm not going to share with you all the context because that's going to be part of the second thing that I'm going to bring up this morning. But just take in these couple of moments as a man named, I guess he's a man, Melchizedek sits with a man. I know he's a man. Adrian. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abram. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We share with you kind of a big picture here of where Abram is. I'm not going to give you the specific context because, again, that's going to be going to come up in a moment. But I want to tell you what, share with you what's happened so far with Abram. Abram was the son of a man named Terah. Terah had two sons. It was Abram and Nahor. There's also Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Nahor was married to Milcah. Abram was married to Sarai. Terah moves, wants to go to Canaan. He gets as far as the place called Haran. And he sets up the camp. And then God calls Abram. He says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. A place you haven't been to. I want you to go take Sarai, 
He ends up taking Lot as well when he goes to the land of Canaan. And God makes some promises to him. He promises him that you're going to be the father of a lot of people, a lot of offspring. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And you're going to inherit pretty amazing land. So Abram, not seeing this land, does what he's told to do. He goes off to this land. <clears throat> was it this last, well, it was about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I had the chance to go to the Holy Land. I had the chance to stand on Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is where Moses stood as he looked over into the promised land. He didn't get to cross the Jordan. You could see the Jordan from where we stood. And I want to tell you, I was severely unimpressed. <laughs> I looked out at the promised land. I'm expecting to see land of milk and honey. And I'm like, looks like a desert. Looks like a wilderness, man. I'm fun impressed. I mean, it's a nice view from Nebo. And I'm thinking, man, was this different 3,500 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago? But it's not very impressive now. And this is the land that was promised to Abel. And what's happened so far before this meal where this king of Salem, Melchizedek, sits and has a meal with Abram? What's happened so far is Abram has gone to this land and God has made these promises to him. It would be like somebody loaded you up in a limo and said, hey, I want to take you on a ride. So you get in the back seat of the limo and you're riding and he pulls you up in front of this beautiful house. It's got like columns, white columns. You know, it's got to be impressive. It's got columns. It was like a plantation. <laughs> this beautiful spread. You see rolling hills on the back behind it. He, he, he rolls into it. Went, it's one of those dark, black and smoke winds. And you look out that window and you're like, oh man, that's beautiful. And he leans over to you and says, this is going to be yours. In fact, this is yours. And you're like, huh. That's interesting because you look through the window and you see somebody eating at the table. And you see little kids running around the front yard. And you see cars parked in the driveway. <coughs> and you see one of those Kubota Rangers parked out on the hillside. And you go, man, somebody lives here. And you're promising to be this place. So not only is the place unimpressive now, that picture didn't work for the fitting with the wilderness. But it connects with the reality that when Abram shows up, somebody's already living there. And God's saying, this is going to be your land. Looks like somebody lives here already. <laughs> he says, no, that's your place. So Abram shows up to a land that's already occupied, a land that's really wilderness. In fact, it's so wilderness that Abram at one point experiences famine. This is early on. He experiences a famine as to load his family up. Sarah, at this point, no kids. And go to Egypt. Acts like a complete bonehead. And comes back into this land. He's living like a nomad. He's living like a gypsy. He's traveling around in tents. He just lives in tents. In a wilderness. And yet God said, well, you're going to be many. I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. All that is background for this moment where here, having received none of the things promised to him, he's been through a famine, the closest he actually came to experiencing a land flowing with milk and honey is where he stood with his little knucklehead nephew, Lot. And said, okay, Lot, showing his grace, says, Lot, you pick first. There's not enough land here for us to live together. You pick first. And Lot says, I think I'll pick that really lush place over there called Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abel's like, oh, <laughs> that was the only place that didn't have dirt. Okay. The closest he came to experiencing a land flowing with milk and honey was when Lot picked the land first. <coughs> Still living like a woman in Egypt. And here is the first time we see him eating in this whole story. Now we know he must have eaten. He experienced the famine. But this is the first time that God shows us Abram sitting down and eating. And he eats with the priest of the Most High God, the king of Salem. Times with Abram. Now to understand what's actually taking place here. 
We need to go to Hebrews chapter 7. So let's go. There's only a few passages we're going to this morning. So it would be really important that you go to all of them. This is on page 1004 of the Bible, or if you have a ESV. It's not a study version. It's one too. We're going to spend these next few minutes. I want you to understand who Abram's eating with. Because this is going to come full circle to our Lord's Supper. Chapter 7 of Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, same guy we've been reading, same guy we've been talking about. I call him Mystery Mel. Because we don't know where this dude came from. He's a king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's the context that I'm going to share with you in a second. We'll come back to the slaughter of the kings. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, speaking of Mel. By translation of his name, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So he's first of all king of righteousness. And he's also king of Salem. And Salem means peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life or end of end of life, but resembling the Son of God, resembling being a keyword, he continues as a priest forever. This guy is like super priest. If he's not an early Christ, and that's what some people think, that this is Christ showing up early, for what would be called a theophany, where God reveals himself to someone. If this isn't Christ himself, then man, he's just shy. Just shy. This guy's amazing. He's like superhuman if he's human at all. I can't figure him out. He's mystery Mel. Is he even human? It's weird. But it appears as though he's not Christ because here the writer of Hebrews says that he resembles Christ. He's what I would call the penultimate priest. Penultimate is a good word. I'm going to introduce you to it. I, I like the words. Uh, there are a few pre preachers that I listen to periodically. One is John Piper. One is uh, Mark Driscoll. And Mark Driscoll uses this word wrong. It's the one thing I got on this guy. He's amazing. But I think it's sort of like the, you know, the story of the emperor's new clothes. Nobody will tell him that you're using that wrong, Mark. Some of y'all know the emperor's new clothes and know that story. He's using the word wrong. It sounds like the, the pinnacle of ultimate. The super ultimate. But it means just this side of ultimate. Penultimate is just this side of the ultimate. And this priest is sort of a, an ultimate priest. Now listen to what the writer of Hebrews does with Mel. And this will come back around to the needle, so I want you to do the work. In these next few minutes, this is sort of a complicated passage of Scripture. Don't expect to get it all. Get the flavor of it. Realize this letter, this book of Hebrews, is written to a bunch of Jews who would have been well acquainted with Melchizedek, who would have been well acquainted with the Levitical system, but were well acquainted with the Jewish sacrificial system. And this is sort of an, an argument against those things being, well, not against it, it's the usefulness of those things being fulfilled in the person of worship, Christ. So pay attention to that Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the great greatness of Mel. The patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. I mean, he's great. He doesn't have a father or mother or genealogy. He's got no beginning of days, nor end of life. He resembles the Son of God, and he continues as a priest forever. So that the Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is their brothers. That is from their brothers. Though these are descended from Abraham. But this man, Mel, he's contrasting Aaron and the Levitical priests to Melchizedek. This man, Mel, does not have his descent from them. He's not a Levite. He does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The inferior, in this case, being Abraham and the superior being Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That would be in the case of Levites, when people paid their tithes through the sacrificial system to the priests. 
But in the other case, by one of whom is testified that he lives, that's Melchizedek, who is a priest forever. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the warmth of his ancestor when Melchizedek died. So far, they're just contrasting the superior priest, Mel, with the Aaronite priest, or the Levite priest. And he's going to continue to build on this. And if you stick with me, I promise you this will pay off. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it they received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? If perfection had been achievable through the sacrificial system, you remember, he's writing to a bunch of Jews. If true cleansing had been achievable through the sacrificial system, why would they even need another priest like Mel? He's arguing against maybe a dedication still to the Levite system. If perfection was attainable, who needs a priest like Mel? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. That's what I'm saying, like the Salemites. Where did Mel come from? I don't even know. He's pointing out to a bunch of people who are holding on to the Levites. Man, he didn't even come from that tribe. For the one whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not Levi, and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest, capital P, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of the legal requirement concerning following descent, but by the power of the indestructible life. Now he's rolling in the new priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's contrasting Christ. So far it's been the Levitical priest and Mel, and he's talking about how amazing Mel is compared to the Levitical priest. And now he's even raising the bar saying, well, here's Christ. And he calls it the indestructible life. You ever heard of Christ from the devil? Here, empty tomb. He repeating the crucifixion that did not keep him in the ground. The indestructible life. What further need would there have been for another priest to arrive at the order of Melchizedek? Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord descended from Judah in connection with the tribe. Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises at the life, after the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him, your priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, and that's the religious system, where the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath that these who, those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Here's where a bunch of Jew, Jews was in line. What did you just say? This makes Christ the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, as awesome as they may be, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Whatever priest they may have been holding on to, the Malio, whatever priest they may have been thinking back to, Aaron, they all died. They were not indestructible. But he, this priest we're speaking of now, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently. Here he's indestructible. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save because of his indestructibility. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives here indestructible to make intercession for them. It is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like 
those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for their own sins and then for the, the one that's the worshiper, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. That's a complicated passage of scripture. I know it. I've been already 50 times preparing for this morning. What I want to bring out and draw out is that this is comparing the Levitical priest with the order of a Melchizedek type of priest. One who lives forever. Writing to a bunch of Jews, showing them the imperfections of the Levitical system, contrasting it first with super priest, the penultimate priest, Mel. It's this amazing penultimate priest that is eating with Abram. Our Lord's Supper, as hard as this passage is to, to understand, I urge you to go back and read it because it's going to come full circle right now because our Lord's Supper is the substance of the shadow where Abram eats with Our Lord's Supper is the reality of that foretest. That moment where Abram sits and eats with Mel, that informs this, what we do week by week. That helps us understand what's taking place here. We need to first marvel that a penultimate priest, Melchizedek, ate with Abram. We need to take in the gravity of that. And then we'll be all the more amazed at what takes place in our supper. And here's where, here's where it comes together. In the case of Abel, the penultimate priest of the Most High God eats with a man who's been promised much. He eats with a man who's been promised much, but has only received tastes. He eats with a man who's been promised much, but's only received tastes, but who is living by faith, not by sight. Because if he was living by sight, he would quit. He eats a meal with God's representative, Melchizedek, the penultimate priest, as a taste of life to come, a taste of promises to be made good. This is our supper. When we sit and dine together as a people on bread and a cup, the priest of the Most High God, the ultimate priest, not the penultimate, the ultimate priest, the superlative priest, the indestructible priest of the Most High God, eats with people who have been promised much, but who have only received so far tastes, but who are to be living by faith and not by sight, because if we live by sight, we would quit. We need a meal with God's representative, the God-man himself, the mediator, the final, ultimate high priest as a taste of life to come, as a taste of promises made good, the taste of promises yet to be made good. All that takes place when we pass around the bread and the cup. We increase it. Look back at Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. Would you listen to this word again now that we've unpacked this a little bit, now that we've gotten to know Mel, Mystery Mel? Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. Listen to what he says to Abram. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He brings bread and wine to Abram. He 
sits and he has a meal with him. He blesses him and he talks to him like God talked to Adam. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Adam, fill the earth and have dominion over it. He talks with him like he talked to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and in your hand every living thing is delivered. Like one who has dominion. He talks to them like he talks to us in our meal as he says, go therefore and make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. Have dominion. Be fruitful. <coughs> we dine on the Lord's Supper. We dine with the priest of the Most High God. This is no snack. This is no empty ritual. This is a meal for the ultimate priest. Second, the Lord's Supper is a supper of victory. I told you I was going to share with you the context around this meal with Mel, and now we're going to go there at the beginning of chapter 14. Before I warn you, there's some weird names in here. I'm going to give them my best shot. These are under-visited, all these names and this story, but I'm going to give you a bird's eye view before I read this chapter. Lot is living in Sodom. You know, probably know part of the story, Sodom and Gomorrah. There are kings over these places. It's the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. There are kings of these little areas in Canaan. Governors, mayors, what are they? Tribe leaders? I don't know. They're called kings in our Bibles. And this story that I'm about to read, there are four kings coming up against five kings. Apparently, at one point, these four kings are under the hand of a king over here named Ketaleon. Watch what Abraham does in this story. Get beyond the weird names in Mark's It's bad. 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 In the days of Unravel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Ketaleon, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goad. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinak, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zebulun, and the king of Bala, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidon, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketaleon, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. They had enough of Ketaleon. Cheddar. In the 14th year, Ketaleon and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Repham in Ashtaroth, Kenaram, and Zuzin, Zuzin in Ham, the Eman in Shaba, Kiriathan, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazan, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adna, the king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined the battle in the, battle of, in the valley of Siddim with Ketaleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goan, and Raphael, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitterness pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Okay, so Lot is a POW. All right, he's a POW really, I think, at this point under the control of Ketaleon. All right, here's what happened. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Abram's an old man. Now, I need you to know that. He's an old man. We don't know if he walked with a cane by this point, if he needed assistance, if he had a stroller. Not a stroller, it's a walker. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if he needed that sort of assistance, but we might imagine he had a cane. Whatever the case, we know he's an old dude. One who escaped came to Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshel, of Anna. These were allies of Abram. 
And when Abram heard that his kinsman had been taken captive, talking about Lot, when he heard Lot was a POW, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. This old man turns into Ricky reconnaissance. <laughs> he puts on his beret, you know, his green beret, where it's all down over his eyes and barely got his teeth under it. He puts on his, his weapons, his gear. We were talking about this last night with the table with the kids. I told him they had a cane. He had a cane in one hand, his lightsaber in the other. <laughs> 318 of his strong, trained men went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. And he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedalaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. I wanted to read what was sandwiched around this story, because as we looked at it in the close-up, in the micro-view, we see Abram eating with the priest of the Most High God. But when you kind of pan out and you take another look at it, you see Abram eating with the priest of the Most High God as a victory meal. Man, he went Ricky Recon. Whipped all these kings. And goes and grabs his kinsmen and brings him and all of his goods and all of his family. Preserves them, protects them. His king in one hand, his lightsaber in the other. This is a victory meal. It could have gone something like this, where he and Mel talked, and Mel says, man, you whipped him, didn't you? You were bad. But I bet it was something like this. Man, God whipped him, didn't he? Oh, man. God whipped him. Chunked him. Turn to Exodus chapter 5. I want you to see this emotion in Exodus. If some of you are wondering what to study, in the Bible, if you want to study and you know you need to and you're like, man, where should I study and you're not okay with the reading where the Bible falls over the technique? Study the Exodus. I don't know if there's anything that's more worldview shaping than the Exodus phrase. The Exodus is a story of God raising up a people and calling them out of Egypt. You get to know God's character. You get to know how God interacts with his people. You learn so much about God. You also learn what's in store for this future exodus that we all will experience, for those who know him, where he says, come out of her, my people. And instead of the plague, it's going to be the tribulation. Study the tribulation and the revelation, you will see a lot of things that resemble the plagues here in the Old Testament in the Exodus. And you also get to know that what this whole thing is about is that they may know that I am the Lord. God draws out his people and mighty acts of judgment. So let's climb into this story. Just a, just a verse or two, and then I'm going to take it somewhere else. Exodus chapter 5. This is early on in the story. The nation of Israel has been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God called Moses to lead this people out. Moses said, I don't talk real good. He said, okay, well, I'm going to have Aaron talk for you. No more excuses. Moses says, okay, let's do it. So they go to Pharaoh. Chapter 5. And they go specifically with what the Lord has told them to say. And Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. If I were to stop right there and quiz most of you and ask what comes next, I bet most of you would say something go worship me. In fact, I quiz people this week. But what did God say? They go to the wilderness to worship? Let's read what it says. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me. In the wilderness. Let my people go so that they can go out in the wilderness and dine with me. I turn to Exodus chapter 24. <laughs> you know how the story goes? The mighty acts of judgment. God delivers his people, rescues them, and calls them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground after the Passover. <laughs> The Egyptian army is swallowed up in the Red Sea, drowns. And here they are at Sinai. 
first major moment of their wilderness experience where they show up at Sinai and get the law. Now, this, is the, this is the time where Moses is making these trips up and down the mountain. At one point, they're down making a cat, you know, golden cat, and dancing around with a bunch of hooligans. That's later on in the story. This is before that time. Watch what happens in this chapter, chapter 24, Exodus. He said to Moses, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall, shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now let me tell you something briefly about peace offerings. Peace offerings is one of the unique offerings where you actually had a deal with God. Not all the offerings were completely burnt up. Part of the peace offering was actually eaten by the priest. And it seems the worshiper himself. Certain portions went to the priest. Certain portions were burnt up completely. And they were called a food offering to God. And then it seems some of it was actually eaten by the worshiper. It's a meal with God. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings, a.k.a. had a meal of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the blood of the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Watch this. And Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. <coughs> if you know your Bible, you know that nobody sees God of Israel. But somehow they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement, a sapphire, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They somehow saw him live. Watch this. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. God told Moses and Aaron, go to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free so that they may go out in the wilderness and have a feast for me. And that's what happened right here. God eats with his people. In this chapter, there's sacrifice, there's fellowship, there's consecration where there's blood flying everywhere, on the altar, on the people. There's grace, the fact that they didn't die when they saw God somehow, because he didn't lay his hand on them. All those things are part of this context and this meal, this chapter, but one definite ingredient of this meal is that they ate with the God who spoke and said, set my people free that they may have a feast with me. They ate with this God. said, set my people free. They ate with the God who said, Israel, come forth. They ate with the God who said, Israel, come out of her, my people. And here they are, free. This may not mean much to us right now. But if you were sitting eating that meal, if you were one of the young men eating part of the peace offering as an oxen, that oxen chunk, and you see Nadab and Abihu and Moses and Aaron up on the mountain, and all you see like this big glow, and they come down burping, and you can think back to the stripes that you have across your back, to your granddaddy and your grandmother who died in slavery in Egypt, and you're thinking about the God that delivered you through mighty acts of judgment. And here you are having a celebration, victory meal. Let's eat. A lot like Aaron, excuse me. A lot like Abraham eating with Melchizedek. 
saints will come. They are free and dining with their God. They're having a victory meal. It reminds me so much of the story of Lazarus. It's been a long time in John chapter 11. We buried one of the people in chapter 11. Keaton Court. God equipped us not only for his burial, but for future burials, future losses. Maybe I would interpret past losses. John chapter 11, we saw Lazarus dying. We saw Mary and Martha. We smelled Lazarus' stench. We felt the hopelessness with Mary and Martha. We're saying, you're too late. But then we stood in that graveyard and we heard Jesus said, remove the stone. We heard Mary and Martha object. No, he's thinking. Don't bother. We heard Jesus say, call him by name, which is a good thing. If he had called him by name, the graveyard would be empty. Called him by name, he says, Lazarus, come forth. He says, Israel, come forth. The next chapter, John chapter 12, the next thing that you see, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And you see the beauty of that? You see a victory in you see God eating with the one he delivered. That's our Lord's Supper. Our Lord's Supper is a victory meal. Ketelaomer and his wicked counterparts are whipped. Chomped. Pharaoh, in his heavy hand, goes for a long swim in the Red Sea. Prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. He's whipped. Our bondage to slavery and sin is over. And we are freed by the life giving call. Set my people free. Come out of her, my people. Even death is defeated. It has no more sting than a dirt dollar. For his people. That's what takes place in our meal. The victory meal, boy. God with them. We can enjoy the victory together. Let's dine on this meal together this morning. I can't imagine the anticipation as uh, <coughs> someone came to make an offering, peace offering. And as they stood in the tabernacle or the temple, the same very tabernacle or temple that if someone went in unclean, they were cast out. The same tabernacle or temple that smoke spilled out of it, that God showed up in, that if a priest were to offer sacrifices wrongly, they could be consumed, asked Nadab and Abihu, unless it became a sacrifice. Imagine, feel your heart race as you eat with a priest who dies. Oh, what will be replaced? We're about to eat with the priest of the Most High God, a priest forever, who saved to the uttermost, and does not cease interceding for us because he lives. You want to eat with the priest of the Most High God. Superlative. The ultimate. Let's eat with it now. We die in celebration of deliverance from sin and Satan. That's our Egypt. That's our Ketavaoma. We die in celebration of deliverance sin and Satan. We 
drink in celebration that death has no sting. For those who read Christ, if you die before the Lord should return, you're asleep in Christ. And you're with Him. Man, that's why we celebrate. We drink because He's with what we couldn't. Right? He's with what we couldn't, so let's drink in victory. Church, by definition, is together. It's the people of 
God and joy, savoring these things. We're not fact collectors, we're truth enjoyers. That's what we're doing. We're enjoying the industry. I encourage you. If you're not in a small group, why not? <coughs> I just tell you, I can't think of an excuse that wouldn't be lame. <laughs> I love you when I say that too. I love you when I say that. I encourage you to engage people with these realities. That's God. Y'all stand up. What instructable is so beautiful and so wonderful. Thank you so much for our time together this morning. Thank you for the day when the bride will be seated at a table enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look forward to the day that our groom, indestructible, enters in. We cheer for him now. We celebrate his finished work, his victory, week by week as we take the supper together. And we love you so much. We thank you for our Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.